Welcome to the Small Jar Podcast, where we moms of teens find the power to step off the emotional roller coaster between motherhood and the empty nest. I'm your host, Jennifer Collins. Episode number 72. Hello, friends. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Allie Flynn, the founder of Hang In There Mama. You might already be following her. She's an influencer and educator who offers support and encouragement for moms navigating the ups and downs of parenting. She's also the mom of four daughters. She has two in college and two in high school. I invited Allie to come on the podcast first because I thought it was an amazing opportunity to connect you with another resource as you navigate your own journey raising teens and young adults. But as Allie and I connected, I thought our conversation could also provide a bit of perspective in terms of how we all struggle with different aspects of motherhood. And since I've recently been sharing the series on mindset traps of moms with teens and empty nesters, I also realized as Allie and I were talking how perfect it would be to invite you to listen to our conversation looking for examples of mindset traps like perfectionism, the comparison trap, all or nothing thinking. We as moms fall into these traps, but our kids also fall into these traps. And it's perfectly normal that our minds do this, but learning to take a step back and understand these subconscious traps really can empower you to become intentional with your parenting. I truly believe that we're all doing the best we can. Certainly, if you follow my podcast or follow Allie's work on Hang In There Mama, you are by default the kind of mom who's trying her best and looking for resources to continuously grow. I wonder when we'll let ourselves believe that that's enough. So with that, enjoy my conversation with Allie, and I'll be back to the Mindset Trap series next week. Enjoy. Hello, Allie. Welcome to the Small Jar. It's so great to have you today. Oh, thank you. It's such an honor for you to ask me to be on here with you. Allie, I've been following you on Hanging There Mama for quite a while. You have an incredible following, and I just was drawn to the work you do because I've always found that when we get to this point in life, you can feel so alone in the experience you're going through. And so I love that you've created a community. Maybe we can start by you kind of talking a little bit about how you got into the work that you do. Yeah, I think that's a common thread that a lot of moms who are raising teenagers feel is that sense of being alone, right? Like we've gone from being involved in all these elementary school activities and middle school activities and constantly in and out seeing moms and sort of having those connections at you know the younger birthday parties And then it all just sort of stops and moms are, they really stop speaking and they stop talking with one another about, they might have their friendships, but they stop sharing out of privacy for their teen. But also, you know, you're not sharing all of those milestones anymore and you can't, you can't just air out the dirty laundry as often as you're used to. So I think a lot of moms then retreat and, and hibernate. So to create sort of a a community where moms can come together and know that they are not alone and there's so many other moms who are going through this with them, it just offers that support and sort of that sense of each day being able to move forward, even when it's a really big struggle. Yeah. I was always a big reader as well. So especially during COVID, I was reading a lot of blogs, a lot of parenting coaches, you know, sort of all their articles. And I thought to myself, you know what, I have a lot I can share. And just sharing with the transparency of being really real and really honest about it and not making motherhood look so perfect that they had a little community online, at least. 
Absolutely. And something you said was really interesting in terms of letting people know that it doesn't have to be perfect. Because I feel like in this day and age with social media, we're confronted with so many images of perfect moms and you know, all of the celebrations, which, you know, of course, everybody gets to celebrate, but it tends to be only one side of the story. And we keep oh, yeah. we keep the hurts and the pains to ourselves. And then it makes us feel so much more alone when we're experiencing that and then comparing ourselves to these other perfect families, which, you know, I think don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's brutal, right? It is the social media world in that sense is brutal. I mean, especially for moms, just sort of, we are inundated with constantly being sort of given these images that we do have to be perfect and our home needs to be perfect and our family life needs to be perfect and our marriage perfect. And it just doesn't exist. And that's something I talk a lot about, like stop trying to chase the perfection. You're never going to find it, but also stop comparing yourself to what you are really seeing in TVs, movies, social media, because that also doesn't exist. That's fiction, yeah. right? You know, it's sort of funny. I wrote something last year around this time of year about like, oh, you see these beautiful, perfect pictures of, you know, families, apple picking, pumpkin picking, whatever. But I was like, but behind those photos is a mom who is like sweating, probably yelling at her kids to get in the picture, but you don't see that part, right? You don't see that aggravation that sometimes is behind it but really, is that picture even necessary to be perfect? Because it's just for, let's just say, social media, right? Where some of my favorite photos are the ones where everyone is crying and it, it's like mass chaos, because that is the real part of being a parent. And that's life. So, so I think we've just gotten really wrapped up in this warp sense of what things are supposed to look like as a parent. And we are always then going to feel like we're failing. So, you know, that's a a real topic that I delve into a lot is, you know, if we let go of that need for perfection, then we're going to let go of that need. And it then just allows us to recognize like, we're not perfect. What we're doing is enough and that's okay. Yeah. So. No, it's so true. I mean, on the small jar, I've been doing this series of mindset traps and of course, mindset traps are available to all of us at all stages of our lives. But at this time in our lives, when we're dealing with all these challenges, the comparison trap and perfectionism are two really big ones because we just, you know, there's nothing we wanted more in our lives than to be a good mom. And so this constant barrage of thinking that we're not enough and that the bar is impossibly high because it's just not reality and seeing seeing how well other people are theoretically doing it, it's it creates a lot of pain and anxiety for us, for sure. Right. So, and I think the bar is set way too high and because we can't achieve it, then we are never happy within ourselves. So then you have a lot of miserable moms, right? Then we have these expectations of our kids that also are completely unrealistic because of whatever stage of of growth they're in. So it's just this vicious cycle that really needs to come to a close. And I'm hoping um, by the time my kids are parents, if they choose to have kids that this sort of nonsense is over. Yeah. Well, and and one of the things I explore a lot with my clients and on my podcast is about how the way we think about our lives is really directly influences how we feel and then how we show up in our lives. And of course, society plays a big role in how we think and, and how we're kind of geared to think we're supposed to show up. But when we were talking initially, I thought one interesting angle that I haven't explored at all really on the podcast is 
kind of this conversation around how we might think about parenting a little bit different when we have girls and or, or when we have boys. And since you have four girls, I have two boys, I thought it might be a really fun conversation for you and I to have just out of total curiosity. I mean, we, we both, as we explored this, talked about how you and I have our own experience with our kids. It's obviously not universal, you know, the experiences we've had. But but I will just be curious in terms of talking through some kind of big areas of, you know, potential challenge and growth with our kids. If we do think about parenting differently or think about the risks or rewards differently for, for girls versus boys. So our goal today really isn't to offer advice, but really a reflection on our perspective about how we think about these challenges with teens. So why don't we dive into it? I thought we could start with the topic of social and peer pressure and how that's different maybe with boys or girls. What, what have been some of the biggest challenges you faced as a mom in this respect with your girls? Yeah, the social and emotional pressures, I think one thing has always really stood out for me, and that is for girls and how they view what they look like and their body. And for a mom raising four girls, that was something that was really prominent in our home and constantly having positive conversations about it, being really open about it. But also for me as a mom, having to be really mindful of those conversations and how do I approach the conversations in a healthy way? Because I also was brought up sort of in a generation where it wasn't as healthy, right? So I have to also work on my mindset at times, but also just making sure that it's always about how you feel internally about yourself. And that is your worth. And that is what makes you happy. It's not what you see here. Right. And it's not about, you know, the clothes you wear, the size you wear, or anything like that. And so there's a lot to it, at least in my world with my kids, right? It was about what you look like on the outside and constantly bringing it back to the emotional internal piece, but also making sure that bodies were talked about positively and that food was talked about positively and in a balance, not having this big fluctuation on any of those topics. And, you know, I admit like there were times it was hard because I didn't always know how to go about it. But the more we would talk about it, I mean, I learned so much from my kids as well. So I would say that was, that's a really difficult topic at times for me raising girls is keeping that positive body image for them. And also even for myself, like not getting down on myself at times, you know, if I don't like if I've gained a few pounds and not talk about it, you know, so not only giving them positive reinforcement, but being mindful of what's coming out of my mouth about myself and not self-sabotaging myself in front of them. Yeah. Now going into raising your kids and you, you know, referenced, I mean, we obviously as women grew up in a culture that we've kind of dealt with these challenges for a long time. Did you already know that this was going to be something that you'd want to talk about. It sounds like you had a lot of intention when you talked to your girls about that. Did you kind of, before they even had challenges, know that this was something that you wanted to address head on? Yeah. 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 I would say going into raising girls, I knew all along that food, let's just say food, for example, that was always going to have to be a topic of conversation that was positive. And food wasn't looked at negatively and finding a balance and 
making it that dessert isn't a negative, right? But it's it's a positive. And we so I, I just went into it always knowing there needs to be a balance surrounding certain topics and there needs to be open conversation about it and really good modeling. So I did know that going into it, but I didn't know that sort of our world of social media was going to transform it and make it a little bit harder for me as a mom. And I actually didn't think also that my kids were going to potentially meet people who were going to make it harder for them and not just their peers. Like I went into it knowing their peers could potentially have influence, but I wasn't expecting coaches, dance teachers. So there were often times where I was put in a situation as a mom where I now had to remedy certain comments or things made by the outside world. I really wasn't expecting that. Yeah. You want to know what's so interesting is when I when I had boys, I honestly going into raising them kind of felt some relief because I also anticipated if I had a girl and you know, I've had my own issues with my body image and you know, eating for, you know, particularly when I was younger, but of course it extends into when we're older too. And so I felt some relief that okay, I don't have girls, so I won't have to, I think that there, in my mind was, uh, I would want to set a good example and there's kind of a little bit of pressure, at least the way I had been thinking about it if I had had girls. And so interestingly, I go into raising boys thinking it wasn't going to be an issue and I was wrong because boys also, and, and this could also have been true for us when we were growing up. I don't, I don't have that experience. My brother didn't have these issues, but I was surprised at how much height for boys is an issue and how much physique in terms of whether or not you have muscles like or versus if you're too skinny and how all of that plays such a even hair right and like the projection of whether or not you're going to be losing your hair like really play into the psyche of boys in a way that I don't think we talk about a lot and that that I think was a real surprise to me and I think not being prepared for it going into it was kind of a shock because it was like all of a sudden I had to back up and try to do some of the things you had been doing intentionally. Like it's not about your outward appearance, but when your child is really hurting or really insecure, you can't talk them out of it. That's that's something that they have to experience. And so that can be challenging because then you're you're worried about wanting to fix that for them and we really can't. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of friends who have boys mm-hmm. and you brought up the height and I never thought about that. Because for the girls, it's always more about weight, right? And for the boys, I was constantly hearing my friends with raising the boys, it was about height and they're not growing or they're insecure. And I never thought about that. And I mean, I my girls happen to be pretty tall. So I dealt with height with my daughters, which is something I think a lot of other moms raising girls they don't deal with. But my girls were constantly constantly heard comments from friends about how tall they were. And it did, it started to eat away at them. You know, I had another daughter constantly hear comments from a dance teacher about how tall she was. You know, she went through a big growth spurt and it's like, so there's, there's things we didn't anticipate, but I have heard that from the boy moms as well. You know, the height, or I even think about even the weight for the boys with football, 
and wrestling and the weigh-ins. And I mean, that is so equally as unhealthy. You know, these boys are dropping weight just to be able to play in a wrestling match, right? But they're doing it in a very unhealthy manner or they're trying to bulk up. But also some of that bulking up, oftentimes what they're doing is it's not a good balance and healthy either. And just really, you know, so on both ends, we have to be very mindful for the boys and the girls, right? Because it's like, you have one body. This is the body we have to take care of. And here we are sort of screwing up our metabolisms. Why? For a weigh-in? Yeah. So it's so true. And the the supplements, you know, the creatine, all of these other things that the boys are taking to kind of help them build up their physique or, you know, meet those weigh-ins. And, you know, it's a lot. And, and I feel like a lot of things that we didn't deal with, yeah. or at least I didn't know about um, growing up at all. So, well, and so even on social media, I know for the girls, which I, my girls taught me this, I did not know that this actually existed, but like on TikTok, it is constantly about diet, diet, diet. Right. And then these very unhealthy videos on how to do it. So I also feel like there needs to be some boundaries within our social media to stop this very negative, unhealthy message about, about weight. Yeah. Well, and the, you know, the, the challenge of it, all of it is, you know, there won't be boundaries around social media and we can't keep the dance teacher or the coaches or the wrestling coaches from making these comments that our kids then internalize and then start to use against themselves mm-hmm. because, I mean, they're so young, they're easily influenced. And so it's difficult for us to kind of counterbalance that because sometimes what people on the outside say holds more weight than what we say, because our kids will say, well, you're going to love me no matter what, but the outside world, it's a whole different story. And that's right. Oh yeah. I've heard my kids say, oh mom, you're just saying that because you're my mom. You have to say that. I'm like, no, it's actually because I really believe it. You know, like It's not just because I'm your mom, but you know, you're right. The only person we can control is ourselves and sort of what goes on within our conversations with our kids. We can't put the controls on everyone else. So that's where I sort of feel like my goal is then to consistently reinforce and have constant conversation about it. Not just one or two times, right? Yeah. And just really reinforce remaining positive, not letting all the chatter seep, you know, sort of seep in and just really having like a rooted foundation of feeling just really confident about yourself and and who you are and what you are offering to the world. Yeah. And you know, I think as an intentional mom, That's, you know, I think in the best case, what we can do to try to help our kids. But then what do we do when they're not internalizing those messages? They're not able to kind of get, get through their own security and find that confidence, which really is going to be on their own timeline. It's not something we can give to them. So how, how do you think about as a mom? I don't know if you've had this challenge, but if one of girls were to not be able to kind of create that confidence. How do you think about that? How do you approach that? Yeah, we have definitely dealt with this. I mean, all my girls, I will say from a very young age, were pretty confident. Yes, they had their insecurities like everyone does, right? But I had one daughter who really went from being very confident to now having this complete shift of just looking at herself in such a poor light because of the messages she was 
hearing from this outside world about, especially about her height. And it got to the point that really, no matter what I said, it wasn't making a difference. It wasn't helping her. It wasn't making her feel better. And there were moments, you know, with a lot of tears and it was a struggle. But like for me, my recommendation really to her was, you know, why don't we go talk with somebody? Why don't we seek some professional help to sort of find those feelings again, right? We have to get back to how life used to be and how you used to feel about yourself because you're absolutely beautiful, right? And you, okay, you're tall, but what does that mean, right? And you can't let somebody sabotaging you make you consistently feel this way about yourself. And also the end goal is as an upcoming adult, right? You don't want to be in your 30s still feeling this way about yourself. So like, let's find the tools, let's work through it. Let's build yourself back up again. But it took a lot of work and it took effort. And we did, we, you know, we wound up seeking outside resources and support. And now she is very happy with her height again and really happy with just really who she is and confident. But it it took a lot of effort and time and somebody else trying to rebuild her, but also remind her of her value and worth. And it's not based in what someone took away from her. Yeah. Yeah. I found in my experience with one of my boys, you know, who was going through kind of a a number of different areas where he was just kind of feeling like he wasn't enough and there was just no talking him out of it. And, you know, I think the additional difficulty was he didn't really want to talk with us about it that often. You know, we knew enough to know these were the pain points, but he kind of really internalized a lot of it. And and that I think is also hard when you're seeing your child go through something and you not only can't take the pain away, but they're not inviting you in enough to kind of feel like, well, the one thing I can do is try to cheer you up or try to give you those nuggets of like, what are those intentional thoughts that might be able to pull you out of the insecurity? And it really kind of just took a lot of holding space for his discomfort and almost almost validating that like i get it like i understand why you're insecure and i think it's it, it's definitely was a challenging place to be to kind of not not want to just fix it and not want to kind of make him feel better and just allow him to feel the way he was going to feel about it and let him get to the place where he decided it didn't matter or that maybe things would be different, but it's a challenge. I mean, the other area I think that kind of is related just in terms of security and insecurity and confidence is the area of friendships and social lives and that sort of thing. I don't know. I don't know if your girls faced any kind of highs and lows in terms of social or peer pressure, that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's so natural, those highs and lows of friendships. I mean, to me, they still happen even as adult women. And that's something I've always shared with my kids. I'm like, you know, you're going to have your close friends, but even as adult, things up and flow and people disappoint you or hurt you. And I can't say to you that it's going to get 100% better. But especially, I remember going back into the middle school years, especially that seventh, eighth grade time, really challenging. I would say all of my kids faced situations where, you know, they thought they had this great friend group and they would sit at the lunch table every day together and go out on the weekends. And then all of a sudden you go to sit down at the lunch table and it's like, no, you can't sit here. Right. And then it's this disaster for them. Right. They don't understand. Well, 
it becomes, why me? What did I do? I'm not good enough. They don't like me. And it's just reinforcing, this has nothing to do with you, right? But they don't want to hear that. And they take the whole thing on. And the emotional toll can be really life-altering for them and how they go about navigating friendships moving forward. But yeah, so the friendship component, it was not always easy, (laughs) really, you know, and it's trying to support them, but only knowing at times like those snippets of information, right? We only know what they share. So if they're not fully sharing, it's hard for us to always know how to best support them. And sometimes even when we're supporting them to the very best that we can, they don't want it. Yeah. Right. They sometimes need to sit in it for a little bit. And like you said, sort of take ownership of it and figure out how are they best going to move forward. So, you know, I think that, you know, you could probably throw out so many different topics. All of it's hard at some point or another. It's so true. Right. You think you have it together. Your kid has it together. And and then something is always going to come along and sort of bulldoze you out of nowhere. And then you just keep putting your feet in front of another one in front of the other, and then you keep moving forward again. But then you get bulldozed with something else that you thought you were really grounded and secure in. And a lot of times, I think what I try to really say to my kids, and it took me a very long time to realize this myself, is the majority of the time, it has absolutely nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. And I say that to my kids, the majority of the time, this has nothing to do with you. This is other people sort of deflecting their stuff onto you, right? I mean, think about it. Like, that's why bullying exists, right? It has nothing to do with the kid who is getting bullied. It's the bullier. Right, right. So, you know, and it, but that's hard to accept because we go back to feeling it's us. We're not enough. What's wrong with me? So it's really, don't think that too. I mean, I think one of the things I work with my clients quite a bit is that no matter what anyone says, it's driven by their own thoughts and their own feelings, which are completely as you say, it's about them. Like it's completely based on their perspective, whatever's going on with them. But we hear those words and we can't help but think that we did something to deserve it or that it might be true or that it's not fair or whatever it is. And really separating out those words that are coming at us from any truth and being able to decide what we want to make them mean is a skill set I think as adults we don't have, which is you know, it's really hard even having, you know, raised, did that person hurt your feelings? And we kind of are living in a culture now where we're all taking things personally, almost to kind of an extreme. And, and it's almost teaching us all that everybody else has to change in order for us to find any type of peace or security in ourselves. And that's never going to work. Because as you said, people are always it's, there's going to be people who do things and say things and we can't control any of it. Right. And so how do we find that, that peace within ourselves? I think as adults, we're still working through all of that. <laughs> I mean, I even think about like, you know, the moments where I really will say, oh, that was like a bad parenting moment. It never has anything to do with my kid. Oh yeah. It has to do with whether it's my insecurity or my worry or my anxiety coming out and I am just putting it onto them. You know, those moments where maybe I lose my cool, I'm raising my voice. It's not about what my child did. Yeah, It's about how I'm handling it based on, normally it would be like some type of anxiety coming out. So it's like reining myself back in to then recognize, okay, this had more to do with me than with 
my daughter. But that takes a lot of reflection, a lot of effort, a lot of really spending some time alone to think through these things. But, you know, even that is so hard. We live in such like this hustle and bustle world. Like a lot of times we don't have a moment to think through what just happened, you know? So it's being really intentional as a parent, which takes time and energy. Yeah. What you said was so right. I mean, ultimately the way we show up is being fueled by how we feel. So if we're feeling anxious and panicked about something happening with our kids, it's going to come out in the way we speak to them, often in the way we're trying to control or manipulate them to make it better or to change their behavior. Also, we can feel better, which is kind of a crazy thing. I mean, of course we want them to feel better, but we really also want ourselves to feel better. And so stepping back, and this is ultimately the work I do with my clients is figuring out how do you gain that perspective? How do you really take ownership of the way you're thinking about what's happening in a way that's creating the anxiety and what's the alternative? What is that intentional perspective? And sometimes we can't jump to the, everything's okay and it doesn't matter and they're going to be fine. Like that doesn't feel like the truth either. So finding what is that powerful thought? And often with our kids, what I find the biggest challenging thought that we have is that whatever's going on with them should be different than it is. Mm. And I think that almost, it's such a poison, I think, in our minds, because of course we want things to be better for our kids. No one would argue with that. But when we look at whatever's happening and we think it should be different, then it's almost like we're fueling this Mm. anxiety in ourselves that we have to fix it, that it's not fair. And that somehow, and not only that, but it's it's going to be kind of the worst case scenario is going to happen as a result of it. And it's just yeah. with with some of all of these things we're talking about, when we see our kids going through difficulty with friendships or body image or all of it, these are things we cannot control for them. We can't fix them. Mm-hmm. And but when we think we can, or when we think that things should be different than they are, it's hard for us yeah. in a parenting sense. So yeah, I think one thing that has helped me throughout sort of my journey. And I didn't always do this in the beginning and I definitely did not do it very well, but is really, you know, validating and saying like, I understand you're going through this. It's really hard. Sometimes my kids just want to hear me say like, yeah, it sort of sucks, you know, like, but this is real, but definitely taking a step back rather than just offering advice or trying to resolve the situation. and. I found that a lot of times I was more fueled by my own thoughts if something wasn't going sort of according to plan or how I wanted it to turn out for my kids. Yeah. And you know, whether that's academically in sports, friendships, you know, the whole gamut. And a lot of times if I was getting frustrated about something, it would fuel me, but then I'd lose sleep as a mom, right? Because now I'm a little anxious about it and I'm worried for them. And then I realized like, if I can just step back, I understand the situation's happening, but now I'm going to step back. Let me give it a few days. Let's see how this turns out. And I swear to you, a lot of times what I saw once I stepped back was my kids were able to move forward and navigate this sooner than I was able to. Mm -hmm. And I realized like, well, wait a second, they're okay. They've sort of moved on. They found the skills to move forward or, or recognize this, coped with it, moved on. Why, why am I still here in this place, yeah. right? So I realized when I step back and give some time, it works out, you know, a lot of times. And if it doesn't work out, then we find that support for them. 
But I was adding, like you said, more fuel sometimes to the fire and more anxiety and worry than necessary. So by stepping back, it actually gave me a little bit of peace and peace in my parenting and peace in my sleep. And it brought my levels down to be able to say like, okay, this is just one of those other things. We're going to get past it. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're saying too, is that by stepping back, it gave you that, it gave you that space to observe your children navigating this without your getting involved and trying to fix it for them. And, and I think there's part of it that's just, it's a habit for us. I mean, we've been kind of fixing things for our kids since they were babies. And so for us growing into the stage where they actually can do these things on their own. I, I sometimes think, and I know it's been true for me, I'm like four steps behind them. I'm like, no, 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 wait, you need my help. And they're like, no, I'm good. But, and sometimes right. we, we see them and they're struggling. So it's natural for us to have this instinct. I don't think there's anything wrong with this, that we have this anxiety, but when we, when we kind of buy into it and think, well, obviously there's a problem and obviously I need to fix it. That's, I think, when we get stuck in a loop versus just saying, yes, I feel anxious about this. Let me take a step back and give this some space and maybe give them a chance. And of course, if they really are struggling and need us, we're there 100%. But can we give them that space? It's part of their journey. Yeah. And it's hard, right? As a mom, it's really hard because you go from being the number one constant supporter and needing to provide everything emotionally, physically, make every decision. And then all of a sudden, now they're tweens and teens, and that naturally has to evolve, and we have to trickle back a little bit. But that evolving is hard, yeah, right? And sometimes we don't realize that we're still treating maybe our teenager how we did when they were 10. And that's not beneficial because the end goal, probably for every mom, you know, is to have a independent functioning adult. Yeah. And if we don't allow ourselves to evolve while they're evolving, then we're sort of holding them back. So So, I think it's very true. It's that offering space where as a parent, I learned so much. Yes. So true. It's so true. We're growing alongside them. Well, it's actually a perfect segue into the other area we wanted to talk about, which were kind of adult topics, which I thought it's so interesting that the way I approached this topic originally was what are the biggest risks and kind of risky behaviors? And I love that you reflected back and said, well, let's talk about adult topics because really some of these things we're going to talk about are just kind of part of life and don't necessarily present risks. But let's talk about how we start to approach these differently or similarly as moms of girls versus boys. Let's start with dating and sex. What, what, how have you approached this topic with your girls? You know, I think for me, it's just always been a part of our conversations. It was never like sex, for example. It's never just like a one-time sit down, let's chat. This has been sort of, again, evolving in our world since they were very young. You know, not necessarily fine details, but age-appropriate conversations, whether it's we're in the car and I just decide, oh, let's have a conversation right now. So it's nice and quiet and everyone's here or one child is here that I need to, you know, speak to. Or other times it's even just as we're watching a TV show and, you know, some sexual content comes on, making a little comment, adding in a little bit of information. You know, sometimes even like there was one show I remember when they were tweens that they were watching and I can't remember the show, but 
every time there was a scene where people were kissing, it was violent. And someone's like thrown against the wall. And I'd be like, you know, this is not normal, right? Like, and even something like that, putting like a little back burner conversation into their minds. So yeah, it was, and I'm a pretty open person. So I would share funny stories, embarrassing stories, right? But I think as far as sex in my family, bringing humor into it, because it is a topic that I would probably say most teenagers or even like tweens before tweens do not like having with their parents. They are uncomfortable. They're embarrassed. They're mortified. They want to pretend like their bodies aren't changing and nothing is going on. So I think the more we just talk openly about it and make it humorous and like, I would always just say, everyone goes through this, right? You're not the only one. You're not the first one, the last one. And just make it really real that every human being goes through conversations about sex or dealing with their sexuality or bodies changing, puberty, the whole thing. Like, So I think it's just normalizing it rather than making it taboo. That's what worked in my house. Probably if you ask my kids, I probably talked about it too much. I had too many conversations um, that they wish they could like forget about, but I just felt it was important. Well, and I wonder too, I mean, I think for each of our families is different, but you know, some of our parents may or may not have been as open with us as we maybe are with our own kids. And, you know, we had the exact same philosophy with our boys in terms of normalizing the conversation, being open about it, making sure that they understood all of, you know, from, from the very basics through puberty and, and sex and all of that. But I wonder if one, one of the biggest differences for us in terms of approaching with boys, I think was really having conversations about consent. Uh huh. Lots of conversations about consent over here too. Yeah. And I think that that was one, it definitely wasn't something I think we talked about as much when we were growing up. And so maybe talk a little bit about what your thoughts are around kind of almost more like what you worry about or what you think about with your girls when you think about consent. Yeah. Consent was something that we talked heavily about. Even consent from consent to be kissed, Mm -hmm. right? Simple as that. So that was a topic that really, we still talk about it to this day, even with my college kids and those subtle reminders, even for me, it's scary sometimes having four girls, you know, and I have said that to some of my friends who have boys and they're like, yeah, but it's scary for us also because we are potentially in a situation where a girl says it wasn't consensual, but it really was on the boys end. So you know, it, it's, I think it's a topic that is important for every parent to have with their kids over and over and over again. You know, beyond just consent for me, it's also consistently reminding my girls about being aware and in control of their surroundings, right? The moment you lose control, the moment that you're not aware of 100% of what's going on. And you might not have the ability to make a sound decision. So, you know, it's about consent, always being mindful and also having open conversations with, you know, let's just say you are in a relationship, the ocean, the open conversation about it and about what you are willing to do and how far you are willing to take this relationship. And then you also have the, you know, like now in high school and in college, I have girls going to parties where they don't know the majority of people there, you know, so talking about that and being mindful, but 
you know, making wise decisions, you know, and again, I can only speak on the the girl platform, but, you know, really just reinforcing to my kids, like, you know, don't go home with somebody you don't know, right? Don't leave a party with someone you don't know. Even if they say, hey, you want to go get a slice of pizza? Don't leave with them if you don't know them, right? And it's two o'clock in the morning because you don't know what can happen. And it's not, I always say, it's not that I'm trying to say, don't trust guys, don't start a relationship with somebody. It's just being mindful yes, and seeing where it evolves, I guess, sort of at like a slower pace. Definitely. Well, we, you know, we had all these same conversations about consent. And I think even to the point of, you know, we also worried about consent, but also, I mean, when, when you have people who are drinking, when, when there's any kind of other things, factors involved, it's not just simple consent, right? It's no longer just to people of same mind agreeing, you know, I think there's there's always the risk that someone could have regret afterwards. Mm-hmm. But also when there's alcohol involved, there's always yeah, there's always room for it. It makes it a lot trickier. Absolutely. And so, you know, we've even to the point of suggesting, and I heard this recommendation from somewhere, my boys, I don't think thought it was a great idea, but I said the reality is if you have a video of you both saying, we're going to do this. You don't ever have to share this. But of course, what girl would want to have a video of themselves agreeing to have sex? But the reality is, unless you see a sober person agreeing to have sex, there's always, which I think only, I think, serve to underscore for them how serious it is. Like you don't engage in sex with someone if there's any question about whether this is actually consensual, right? which I think was one point. And I think we hammered that home enough And then, you know, as they started being, you know, friends with girls and in these situations where they would observe other guys having behavior that we've been very specific about not particularly with girls who might not be sober. And I've seen them step up to be protecting their friends who are girls, which I think is something that I think moms as boys, I think we can aspire to try to have our boys be the one who set the example for their peers and who watch out for the girls who they're friends with or any girl who they, um, because you so often hear these stories of um, people not stepping in if there's some a problem. And, you know, I do think the one blessing of having a boy is you really don't have the same concerns for their physical safety and for their ability to, it's not that it doesn't happen, but it's such a different level of risk. And so I do think that it's wonderful when men can take that responsibility to help the women in the room right. be safe. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was another topic that has sort of been honed into my kids since they were really little, right? Like you never leave your girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You have a buddy system. And then as my kids were moving on into college, and I still say this to them, like you might be going out with a group of five other girls, but like someone should really be sober right? Like, I know you're in college. I know you want to have fun. I don't have blinders on. Drinking happens all the time. But somebody needs to really be the voice of reason, whether that's for when do we need to leave a party? I see something going on. I'm going to sort of pull my friend back a little bit, right? Like, I'm not loving her talking to this guy. Even I'm going to need to have somebody sober for the purpose of a lot of these college campuses, the girls are in and out of Ubers. So, you know, just talking to them a lot about not just sexual consent, but also their safety, right? And being, but again, it's being in a right state of mind and having control. 
So those are real, those are some hot topics in my house. Yeah. But again, not only just like not lecturing, but if I see certain things, I just point it out, you know, point it out to them and say like, oh, don't, don't do that. Right. Or there's a better way of, of handling this situation. And let's like sort of talk through it and role play it a little bit, you know? So I sort of hope that those messages and those conversations are little in the back burner. And I think a lot of times they are. And then, you know, I've had situations where my college kids will call me and say something. I'm like, oh, they were, they were listening, you know? You absolutely. Well, and actually, I mean, there's so many different things that our kids can be involved in or exposed to. And, and really as parents, I think often the communication we have with our teens, mm-hmm. it, it can be so vital, but also so fraught. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, communication is a two-way street and we can show up in the best way yeah. we possibly can from a place of trying not to be anxious and repeating these important messages about consent, about drinking and driving, about safety, all of it. And it can still fall on deaf ears if we happen to have a kid who, for whatever reason, when they're in a space where they're just self-absorbed or they're not they're not open to kind of the the feedback or they're being pressured by peers, and that can become a real yeah challenge, you know, absolutely. You know, the one thing, and I have had this conversation again with friends who raise boys. Yeah. one thing that does scare me is really, you know, the taking like uber driving. Right. And that safety measure. And it's funny because most of my friends who have the boys say, Oh, yeah, we don't we don't have that conversation. Where I'm like, okay, make sure that it is the Uber driver, check the license plate, check the child locks in the back seat, right? Like never take one alone. So there are so many, you know, just that one example for women and young women that my friends who are raising boys, it's not in the forefront of their mind. Yeah, it's so true. And I wonder too, even as you're speaking, I mean, I think it could be, and, you know, again, every young woman is different, but I do think that we all, we know that we have a vulnerability, you know? And so I think I would hope that most young women listening to their mother are kind of making sure, you know, saying to them, be safe and that sort of thing that they do take in those messages. And, you know, even if not all the time, for the most part, they are listening, they are watching out for themselves, because of course, they don't wish any harm on themselves. Mm -hmm. I do wonder sometimes. Not every man out there, right? It's not every driver out there. It's not every man still feeling connected in a safe place with men, but being mindful of that small percentage who will take advantage. Yeah, that's so true. Well, and, you know, on the flip side, I was thinking that because young men maybe don't have that same sense of vulnerability, I do sometimes worry that there's like a, there's almost like a feeling that they can't be hurt, you know, that like almost like an obliviousness in some ways. And again, this isn't all boys, but just kind of the opposite in some ways where I know that I've noticed some of my guidance is clearly falling on deaf ears when I say things like, you know, just make sure you're driving the speed limit. And it's not that they're always speeding, but you know, they're they're kind of like, yeah, mom, I, I get it. Mom, it's fine. You're being overly cautious. I get that a lot from boy. <laughs> right. Well, and naturally, right? They're impulsive. Yeah. And naturally, they're in this phase where they think they're invincible. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's hoping those messages 
blasting. But a lot of that is really the brain not being fully developed. Exactly. And then you get a group of boys together who, you know, all of a sudden one pops out some kind of drug or something and it becomes a lot of peer pressure. And so, you know, there, I think there is this aspect of parenting that sometimes feels like whack-a-mole. Like you can give them all of the right advice and then a problem pops up that you didn't even think was going to be an issue or, and just being able to continue to grow in those conversations. And, and, you know, I think from a communication standpoint, we may not always know. Like we may not always know what's going on with them, but we're observing behaviors that we don't like, or they're more closed off or whatever. And I think then that then spiral, we're going to insert like whatever fear that we have is happening. And then we're into anxiety and, you know, then forcing them to try to communicate with them about it. That doesn't work either. So it really is just going back to showing up in a place that's, this is what I'm dealing with, a teen who's not speaking. Now, how do I want to show up? Because we can't, we can't force them. And, and we can certainly set boundaries. We can certainly set rules and curfews and, you know, enforce consequences. And, you know, we were talking before we got on about how oftentimes those boundaries don't necessarily look differently, whether it's a boy or a girl, but at the same time, the way we might need to draw boundaries could be different based on, and again, this doesn't necessarily have to be by gender, but what type of risks or behaviors or influences they're finding themselves involved in where we all of a sudden then see there's a problem here. <laughs> well, and I always say like, even if you have all all girls or even girls in general, just comparing one family to another, it's based on your child and what your teen needs, right? So like I could have myself and let's just say a neighbor who has a daughter let's just say they did something and I need, there needs to be conversation or maybe a consequence or boundaries, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean we have to do it the same way as parents, because we we know our kid, we know what they need and we know how to navigate our child. And I always say like, parent your child, not the other ones on your street, not the other ones in your school, right? My, my teenager needs me to parent them, not, not worry about everybody else. It's so true. And what I, feel like I've learned from my boys is I'm also not always right or not always sure about the right way to parent them. And I think that that's something I learned the hard way. And look, we always go into every interaction with the best of intentions. I think even when we're acting out of anxiety, we have good intentions. Like We want our kids to be safe and healthy. We want all the right things. But I think sometimes we can be so focused on problem solving and mitigating risk that we're not taking the opportunity to step back, as you said before, mm-hmm. and really look at the situation, really find out from our team what's going on. And oftentimes they're giving us cues that we can miss if we're just focused on the scary behavior or the the bad grade or whatever it is that the you know risk is that we see in front of us, we can kind of have this confirmation bias about the risks that we're seeing and not see all of the evidence about how our teens are trying to navigate it, how they are looking for our help in specific ways that may not be about us lecturing them and, you know, setting boundaries, but more sometimes trusting them. And it's such a hard balance. Yeah. And I also think it's so multi-layered, right? So let's just say our teen didn't do well on a math test, whatever. Okay, the the math test grade, I think of it as very surface. 
And I used to even do this prior to having children with my own students. If they all of a sudden weren't performing well or, you know, as an English teacher, right, like their essays have really gone down or their homework isn't getting in, test scores down. To me, that's surface. But it's like, what's the why? Because there's always a reason why. It's not because I didn't want to do well. It's not I didn't want to study. Well, why didn't you want to study? It's not just you were lazy, right? That's not that's not the why. So I sort of try to put it that perspective into my own parenting. Like there's always a different reason further underneath, right? They might tell me this reason, but then I'll keep pressing to get to the why. Yeah. I can't say they always love that because it goes about with a lot of questions. But once then I understand the why, everything just starts to make a little bit more sense, Yeah, right? So it literally goes across every category and every topic your teen will ever face. So it's like, why? What's the reason why? What's behind it? And then that's what I think then draws like a closer connection. And then your child realizes, oh, it's not this. And mom doesn't just care about this. She cares about this underneath. No, that's because that's what's important, right? That's like the crux of it. And like, that's what I always want to help with. I don't want to help you just get a higher grade. I want to help you figure out the why underneath to then propel you because that's what lasts. That's what's lifelong and changing. Oh, that's so true. And I, you know, I do feel like that strategy is so powerful. I think curiosity is always a powerful strategy. Coming at a situation, assuming you don't know, and wanting to kind of really understand the full breadth of it. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge becomes if you don't have a kid who's willing to open up, you know, who's who's closed off and who doesn't want to talk about it, Mm -hmm. and you see you see kind of evidence of risks, whether it's grades or or whatever. And that I think becomes, because I think as long as there's a why with some amount of answer and you've got more information, you know, you start to be able to think through problem solving, which works again, as long as your teen is willing to be a partner in that exchange of problem solving. But if they're not, or if they're not willing to open up at all, I think then that powerlessness as moms can be so painful because we see them in pain. And I think that's that's one of the areas where I spend a lot of time with my clients in some ways, going back to this accepting the reality of what's happening. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you let it go. It doesn't mean you don't continue to parent and show up, but it gets back to the are you parenting from anxiety or are you parenting from a place of curiosity and love and openness, you know, willingness to do whatever it is, even that if that means letting your kid struggle a bit because they won't let you in and just continue to reiterate, I'm here for you. Right. I'm here, whatever you need, even if they're not letting you in. And and that can be hard work. (laughs) Well, and I think that goes back to when the moms also start to feel really isolated. Yes. Right. So then going back to all of that, it's how they feel isolated, how then they're going about their day and then finding the support that they need as well to get through this. Yes, that's so true. And that really, I've found in my work coaching clients, no matter what, and you actually said it right in the beginning, that this always comes down to ourselves. (laughs) It always comes down to our own thinking and our own way of approaching situation and really honestly comes down to the relationship we have with ourselves. Yeah. Like how willing are we 
to trust ourselves that we're doing our best and to trust that we'll be there no matter what for our kids and that we'll be able to handle whatever comes up. I think sometimes our biggest fear is that something terrible is going to happen and that we're not all going to be able to handle it. And in life, that's kind of the way it works. You know, we go through flows of emotions and being able to trust yourself that you can actually handle the seasons of your life is when you're talking about your most precious, you know, loved children, that is a really difficult thing to do when you see them in pain or struggling. But that's the work we do as moms. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it requires us knowing a lot about ourselves before we can move forward, even with our kids. But that takes a lot of healing. That takes a lot of reflection. And again, it takes a lot of effort. And and willingness to go back sometimes to like the painful parts of ourselves in order to sort of, I think, be a better mom and for the betterment of our family. Sure. No, it's so true. It's definitely not. It's not easy. It is not. It's it's an ongoing process. And I feel like at every stage of our lives, it's like dealing with tweens, dealing with teens, then kids in college, and then dealing with in-law, you know, or the kids that they marry, it's all different stages. So it's, uh, we're always evolving. Yes. Well, Ellie, it's been so much fun having this conversation with you. And I just love exploring. It sounds like at the end of the day, there really are so many common through lines of how we parent our boys versus our girls, but there are some unique challenges that each of them face. Shockingly similar, maybe kind of reflections of each other, but Really, at the end of the day, we're all learning through it as parents um, and just navig- navigating it the best we can. Absolutely, right? We we are just doing the very best that we can every single day, right? And that's all we can do. Yeah, it's so true. And if we could just trust that, even that part, right, that we're doing the best we can, that would bring us so much more peace and confidence, I think, in our parenting. But it's hard. That, <laughs> that trust is hard. Yeah. So wonderful. Well, Ali, what what's next for you? I know that you've published a number of articles and ebooks. What's next on the horizon for you? Yeah, you know, I've sort of I've gone from online publishing and my social media pages and building a website. And I'm actually going to be having a 30-day journal coming out soon. So I'm excited to get that into the hands of moms. I'm doing some public speaking in the next sort of upcoming year. So I'm thrilled to do that. And, you know, for me, I am always sort of dabbling in gathering essays to, I'm hopeful to eventually publish a book of essays. Again, all based on motherhood, raising teens, and just offering as much encouragement and support to moms as possible. I love that. So yeah, it's, um, it's been really exciting. So wonderful. Well, it's so fun to share in this work with you. And I was honored to have you on the podcast with me today. Thank you so much for the work you do, Ellie, and for all of your great insight today. Uh, Thank you so much for thinking of me. I mean, it is a blessing to be able to talk to you and to all the moms out there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and check out our coaching program, Mom 2.0 at www.thesmalljar.com. You have more power than you think, my friend. Thank you.